This is great. I'm excited to be here in, uh, in the real America. <laughs> no, more, no more of that fake America. Uh, anyway, on, along those lines, yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for this day. I hope it's a blessing. And after this session, if you think I should change what I'm doing, you let me know. And, and I can talk about pretty much anything. I'm a, I can be a talker. Uh, it's been a strange thing for me in my life. I, I grew up in a European city, Lisbon, Portugal, where people, cathedrals filled the consciousness of everyone. There's a big statue that hung over the whole city of Jesus. So this is my little, I come around the country and the world trying to clarify things. The big statue of Jesus in Brazil was made by a Portuguese man, and it's a replica of the one that we have in my home city of Lisbon. But anyway, Jesus was really prevalent in terms of a stone and a figure and a name, uh, but the people didn't actually believe any of that stuff about hope and resurrection and redemption and forgiveness. That wasn't part of the play for them in their daily life. Uh, as, a, as an adult, uh, being a pastor of people, I've been a pastor in uh, Portland, Oregon, and now in LA for 15 years. That's been my life. And I can tell you right now, it's been a strange thing pastoring people who don't really believe uh, much of the scriptures, uh, much of the, the reality of, of not just did the Bible say these things, but, but is this the hope of all life? And so this morning, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, what it means uh, to believe and how to become even kind of a people that live a life of, of, a, of, of reason for hope, uh, what it means to be a people of God that, that can de demonstrate who he is, what he's like to the world around us, but then also how we, I believe, in this coming generation, this coming uh, age of the church, where we have to uh, grow in becoming a, an apologetic community where we, we clarify, not just to the world out there, but increasingly the people who make up our communities, who make up our churches, how do we help them uh, navigate this world and find lasting hope, uh, not just once in an aisle situation, but for, for the whole of life. Uh, and so, yeah, I've been around those kinds of folks for, for a long time, and, and I love to think through uh, how do we make the, the gospel clear to folks? What are the big burning questions that people ask? I remember when I first started, I thought, oh, we need to come up with lots of good reasons and, and articulations around sexuality and, and gender and politics, and those are the things that are keeping people from faith. But now, this is kind of my, my big statement, if you will. This is one of the only things I'll read besides the Bible. But this is, this is what I've come to know and, and kind of believe really deeply, that the primal and preeminent question of this generation is not about the existence of God. No, our sincere skepticism asks this, is there anything to hope for? Is there anything that can change me and change this world? I think that's the preeminent, primordial like question that people are asking. Is there anything that can change me or this world? Is there anything to hope for? Uh, several years ago, I, I have a dad of two, two girls and a boy, but I'm a really good dad to the girls also. Uh, or not also, but just really good dad to the girls. And my son, I think I'm a good dad. It's one of my big prides. I'm like, I'm good at this one thing. And then the rest I'm mediocre at. But uh, 
I was a good dad at the moment, and so I watched with my kids the wedding of uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Merkel. Uh, do y'all know, y'all, y'all remember that? We kind of claim them. They're like our royalty. Meghan Merkel, this is a side note. She grew up in the neighborhood that my family lives in. Uh, but we watched that wedding. It was really beautiful. I don't know if you remember it, but there was all these famous people and good-looking people and hats. And uh, they walked down the aisle. And she, uh, she went down partly the aisle with uh, Prince Charles, you know, barely making it. But then she walked the rest of the aisle by herself. Uh, she's a mixed-race person. And so that was a big deal. She was divorced. She was American. It was like this, wow, the world is coming together. There was a really great speech, uh, like homily from this American pastor, Anglican priest in uh, South Carolina. And it was just really, the gospel choir was singing over. It was really powerful, beautiful. Afterwards, they got into this carriage and rode around and waved their hands and people were ecstatic. And the, and the very next day, there was this article from uh, a prominent uh, newspaper, global newspaper, uh, and then it said, this wedding changes everything. I was like, wow. Uh, I was there on the couch live streaming it, and I didn't get that vibe. And the person went on to describe that why this changes everything is, is that this wedding revealed a healing of, uh, of humanity. That, 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 that wars would be less likely to happen, that racism was getting solved, that our pre-conceived pre, you know, notions about marriage and family was, would somehow be healed through this whole thing. And they went on to describe, well, well Harry, is a, he fought in a war in Afghanistan. He's really famous, highly educated. She's really famous. Like, she was on that TV show that nobody watched called Suits. Uh, you know, like, this is all going to come together now. I remember just being shocked because on that same uh, news site, there were multiple articles after that about North Korea testing uh, nuclear missiles that same day. Uh, there was also a story about a church in Texas that, that had seven members shot and killed in this small town on the same day. And I thought, this wedding doesn't change everything. But we, oh, we want to believe that, right? Like, oh, if, if something famous happens, something superficial, like that, that could do it. You know, a public media moment will change everything. Uh, I can also remember, uh, you know, being a college student and uh, getting really excited about hope and change and like this a presidential candidate who became president, you probably remember him, Barack Obama. And uh, it was a really exciting time because you thought, well, here's a person who is highly educated, like teaches at one of the you know, premier universities in our country. Or, or taught, I don't know for how long he actually did that, but he was, you know, at the University of Chicago. Uh, he had won an Emmy for reading a book that he wrote. Like, that's really, a Grammy, sorry. That's really, like, all the awards. Uh, he uh, was incredible at communicating. He had all of these things, and then he ascended, right, to the presidency, where then he was in charge of the most powerful person in the world for eight years. Do you guys, y'all remember that? <laughs> It was a time ago, uh, but it was amazing because uh, being a pastor in Portland through that whole team time, I saw people go from incredible hope to ultimate despair uh, really quickly. 
And then on the last day of his presidency, this was a tradition that was only just recently broken, but the president from George Washington on would give a farewell speech and address publicly. Uh, you might remember in Hamilton, you know, like, you know, one last time. That was about giving one last speech. So Obama did that in Chicago, surrounded by his close friends, his family, all of his supporters, and he said something just so shocking. He said, the only way that anything is going to change is if you people change. And he was talking about, like, you as humans, there has to be some kind of change in you. And this was, I was like, well, you, you know, negotiated nuclear deals, you had this army that was powerful, you could basically do whatever you wanted through executive orders, and now you're saying none of that change, like, none of that can change the world unless you all change. I thought that the hope and change president, admitting that, uh, I, I'm a huge LeBron James fan. He's from around here-ish. <laughs> Ohio. How far is Akron, Ohio from here? <laughs> uh, it's in the middle of America, right? <laughs> so LeBron James, he's a basketball player. He's really good at it. And they did, Nike is also my favorite. So I... If we want to talk about idolatry and things like that, I have a, a high value of the Nike swoosh in my closet. Uh, but they did this ad campaign, it was on, around Christmas several years ago, uh, where they uh, took all of these great black and white uh, you know, photos of young athletes on Christmas morning opening up different, uh, you know, like soccer balls and shoes and things like that. And then, you know, they had this, this caption that said, sports changes everything, uh, from Serena Williams to LeBron, all of this. But LeBron was the main, main person there, as a sub part of his more than an athlete campaign. But the, the idea was sports changes everything, like through athletic accomplishments, we can somehow change the world. And, and I, I'm certain sports has changed everything for, for LeBron, like for his life. Uh, it's certainly changed thousands of kids' lives in Akron, uh, Ohio, where he's built a school and sent a bunch of kids to college. It, it certainly has that effect. And you can look through history and see these great Olympic moments that have happened and think, well, that, that's global peace. I was even reading a book uh, on the plane yesterday about FIFA world soccer and the corruption that happened and all of these people in power thinking that they were going to get Nobel Peace Prizes because they were doing World Cups where Coca-Cola and Sony spent millions of dollars to advertise. And they thought, well, that would bring global global peace. Even this idea, part of why Russia got the World Cup that time is because they thought, well, if we give them the World Cup, we'll get world peace through that. And it's just sports doesn't change everything, does it? So that's the, I think that's the environment. We keep asking and we keep longing for these other things to change us and the world. Uh, one last one, and then I'll, I'll talk about the Bible, I promise. Uh, I love space. I love the exploration of space. Uh, my first CD to ever own was nothing cool. It was just uh, the soundtrack of Apollo 13. 
and it just talked through the countdown. And then there was a few really good songs from Jimi Hendrix, but it was mostly just this really dorky, uh, the, the sound of Apollo 13. But space is pretty remarkable. In, in Los Angeles, we have the Griffith Observatory. It's up on this hill. You can go and you can look down at the city, but you can also look up to the stars, and there's all these telescopes, and uh, you can really peer into the galaxies and see things so, so far away, even in the midst of the city. And there they have a... A whole exhibit about, because in Los Angeles, we, we built a lot of the things that, that went to the moon, and we designed them, and, and that industry exists even to this day. And there was a lot, big display on uh, the scientists and the engineers at the time. And you can even find these articles that's, that have quotes from these scientists who said, landing on the moon, this changes everything. And the idea was through technology and the development of technology, we can somehow create a world in which sickness, death, disease doesn't happen anymore. Uh, there's this, uh, a really great book on uh, American Moonshot is the title of it, and it's about John F. Kennedy's desire to do the, the whole space race. And it wasn't really about putting someone on the moon, but it was we would be investing so much money into technology that our whole country and society would grow into this mecca, beautiful, peaceful, shalom oasis in the world that we, through discovering how to make microwave, microwavable food and by creating computers to solve that problem, and then they did, and I think what's terrifying and sad is that what we learned how to do is how to destroy people more than make people whole through technology, right? Uh, the, the advent of the internet, we thought this will change everything. The, the personal computer, that will change everything. I remember uh, 2006 watching Steve Jobs go, you know, a phone, a watch, a camera, you know, and then he put it all together and gave us what was going to make all things whole, the iPhone. But instead now, researchers are saying that, that humanity is creating a whole new bone here in our neck because we're like this all the time. And that, that, that humanity doesn't have this incredible rich connection of relationships with people that they're around. They have these fake relationships with bots and people programming somewhere, but they don't have any true relationships with the people around them. So the, I think that's why the, the primal preeminent question that people are asking is, what does change everything? Because we know, we instinctively know when we're watching that famous wedding, when we're watching the president, whoever you voted for, you know that as they do the whole Bible thing that they're not gonna do anything with the Bible and they're definitely not gonna bring the kingdom of God. We know when we buy that new gadget, it's really not gonna make us whole. Uh, we know when we watch the famous thing happen with sports or athletics or entertainment or TV that that doesn't actually change anything. Obama was right on, on a few things. One primarily that nothing will change unless something changes us, and those other things won't do it. And so I think what I love about the Bible is it's incredibly honest. The Bible is deeply honest about the world. Uh, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, that's what we'll be reading today, so you can go to Mark chapter one and uh, your phones, that doesn't change everything. Uh, or you can, old school, they also thought the same thing about the printing press, and so. It, it might have changed everything. The, the mass production of the Bible to many, many people was a big deal. But Mark chapter 1, I love the Bible uh, in, in this way. Uh, it's very honest. The first verses of Mark 1, it says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And what I like about that, beyond that that's one of the greatest lines that humanity could ever hear, if the Bible was just that, it would be, it would be amazing. But the Bible doesn't try to convince us uh, of brokenness, the Gospels especially. They don't spend a lot of time outlining the, the need of forgiveness of sins. It's amazing. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. You could read all of the Gospels, and they start with this assumption that anybody who ever unrolls that scroll or flips through those pages or hears these words read out loud, they will all come into that with this assumption that the world is so broken and destroyed and distraught and filled with wickedness and sin and that something must be done. Like the Bible just assumes especially the Gospels, it assumes that we all come to it with this question of what will make this well again? Because I'm not well, the people around me are not well. This is a devastating situation. Uh, the world is devastating. Later on in, in chapter or verse 14, which is uh, way more of what we're going to be reading today, it says this, it says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What changes the world? What's the stuff that changes the world? This is so corny but true, and I always have to give that preface in Los Angeles. That, that I'm about to tell you something that's going to sound corny, sound like something that's written on the side of the road on a sign, you know, and it, it sounds like something that someone's preaching on the sidewalk. But this is, a, this is a deep truth, and it doesn't matter how cheesy it sounds, but Jesus truly changes everything. Jesus truly is the only hope. And these words describe why that is the case, uh, why that is the case that we're in such uh, deep need, but there's an even deeper solution. There's an even deeper hope than any despair that we could ever face. Uh, the, it starts with this assumption of needing someone to come and someone to rescue. Uh, one of my favorite books of all time is this book called What is the Watt by Dave Eggers. It's the story of this uh, boy whose family is murdered in South Sudan, and he becomes a refugee. He's one of the lost boys of Sudan, and, and the story is tragic. He, he, uh, he sees all of this violent stuff. He has to uh, go through rivers where crocodiles are killing other children. He, he gets to this refugee camp. He's there for 12 years. Uh, finally, the world kind of hears about it, the, the white world, the Western world, and, and so they all got sent to different countries all over the world, people receiving these, these boys who were just completely uh, orphaned at such a young age and then uh, grew up so quickly. And, and this guy, Valentino Ashok Dang, is the, is the main character. And he finally comes to uh, America. He's in this apartment in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, this Lutheran church has given him all of this wonderful stuff like TVs and beds and food. And, and he's got a good job that they've connected him to where he's working at McDonald's and he's, and he's getting paid. And, and he thinks, now my life is up and up, right? It's all up and to the right. And then what happens, though, is one day someone knocks on his door, he opens it up, it's a gang, they come in, they beat him up, they tie him to a chair, they push him down in his kitchen, and they, when they push him down, his head hits the back of a, the countertop, and he's laying there uh, bleeding uh, from his head while he watches these people take all of the things that the Lutherans had just given him. And he's there, and he's, and he's distraught, but he thinks, well, someone's going to come and rescue me, help me out. 
and, and no, one, no one comes for a bit. And so he's like, still going to see that the door is open and that something bad has happened. Nobody comes. So then he realizes that he can rock back and forth on this chair, uh, the metal folding chair. And he can make a big noise, bang, bang, bang. And he thinks, oh, someone's coming now. Someone's going to hear me. The neighbor downstairs is going to complain. They're going to come up. Bang, bang, bang. Then he finds out how to make even more noise. And he's there, tied up, bleeding, uh, hurting, bang, 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 hoping. Now they can hear me down the street. Someone is going to come. Bang, bang, bang. And then eventually these words are haunting. He says, no one is coming. No one is coming. Doesn't matter how much noise I make. Doesn't matter. No one is coming. And I think that that is, uh, at least the people that I love, that's their assumption at this point. They might, uh, they might be winning Oscars, be judges in the city, uh, building space rockets and all sorts of secret things that I don't know about. And then, but they, they still, deep beneath all of that, they think nobody is coming for the mess inside of me or the mess inside of my family. Uh, when we shut the doors and we're in here in our house, we see it. Uh, when I go home for Christmas and I, I the mess, the, uh, the, the skeletons, nobody is coming for that. And that's why these words, I think, these, these are my, I know we're not supposed to do this, but you know, these are my favorite words in the Bible. So they're, they're, I like them all. I love them all equally. But these are my favorite words. <laughs> These were, and they're, they're, they're strange. My kids are always like, Dad, this it doesn't make sense. You've got to find better words than are your favorite words. They've, they come up with suggestions, you know, like, we memorized John 3.16, Dad, that could be a good verse. But this one, it's amazing, this phrase, it says, Jesus went into Galilee. These are some of my favorite words. Uh, Jesus uh, is, is God with a name, uh, God with a body. God with a story, God with dirt underneath his fingernails, a, a, a transcendent God imminent, to use super theological words, but, but really an, an earthly, tangible God. A Jesus is a name with the meaning. Like we all name our kids and we get excited about that. We did whiteboarding and we bought a book, of, you know, a thousand baby names. And we did all of the research because we're educated people and that's what we did. And uh, we, we also, my wife is a really talented leader uh, in her workspace. And so we, we, you know, did a funnel to create names. And our kids have wonderful names of meaning. You know, one of my daughters names Nora, means light, compassion. It's like, we want her to be light and compassion. Like, that makes sense. And my second daughter, her name is Maite, which is Maria Teresa plugged together. And it means beloved. And that was out of a really hard time in our marriage. And so we wanted her to know that she's beloved, but for us to know too. Like, that was a big part of our story that each of my wife and I were both beloved by God. And our last son, we just called him Truman. Like, we want him to be a true man. We were looking around and beginning to be a little nervous. Like, are there going to be any men? So we, we, the prayer always is that he would be a true man of God, uh, just, just him. Uh, it doesn't have to be rough. He doesn't have to hunt. He doesn't have to do anything like that, but he could be a true man of God. Uh, and Jesus is given a name. You see it in the book of Matthew. His name means, uh, do you guys know this stuff, right? This is not new, but his name means uh, the Lord saves sinners. Uh, it's the same uh, 
name is Joshua, you know, like the, the one who leads people into uh, freedom and a free place, a resting place that brings victory for his people. That's Jesus. The Lord will save people from sin. And that's a hard thing that we trip over all the time, that the Lord would save people from sin because it requires us to admit, oh, I'm not just broken on the inside, but I'm a sinner. That's a hard thing, I think, to swallow. I talk about, in our city, it's the biggest thing to stumble over. Maybe it's not for you guys. Maybe you're all walking around like, we're sinners. We get it. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Maybe not. You probably think, I'm all right. I'm pretty good. Maybe I'm wounded. You know, there's some other people out there that did some stuff to me. Uh, we can go to therapy sessions, and it's, it's shocking. You know, I, I often don't say in my therapy sessions, yeah, there's probably something wrong with me. I want to talk about my parents, my coworkers, you know, this one thing that happened to me a long time ago, and all of that's really relevant. But to, to go from, yeah, I'm the wounded, but also I'm the wounder. Uh, I'm the abused, and I'm the abuser. Uh, Kendrick Lamar, he's a prophet in our city. Uh, uh, He says in the context of a song, kind of talking about uh, that the things that he does that are not good, but he says in the middle of one of his songs, uh, he says, every day I try to escape the realities of this world. And what he's talking about is how the stuff done to him feeds out into the stuff that he does to other people. And he's really just trying to escape the realities of the world, but he's creating the realities of the world also at the same time. Uh, That is what sin is. That is the mess of sin and that we are in deep need of fixing. I think one of the reasons that these other solutions to changing the world don't work is because they don't go to the core of the issue, that, that sin has entered into the world, that we've rebelled against the living God, and we said, hey, I want to enact my own revenge, my own care, my own security. I want to build all of that for myself. I want to be the one who decides what's right and what's wrong. I want to build that all for myself, and it has disastrous consequences. Sin as a program has been a disaster. You know, I know we, we like, you know, national politics is so big and we look at all the different programs, we're like, well, that's a disaster and that's a disaster. Sin is the biggest disaster that we have. The same is true for evil, uh, which is the, the preeminence of sin, sin gone everywhere, that, that it touches all things, as Augustine said, that, that, that evil is the absence of good. It's like this black hole where there's there no more goodness. And we see that that evil is, is everywhere. Uh, you can find it in, in brothels in th- Thailand where, where there's little children being sold, not as children, but just as bodies to be used. Uh, you see uh, evil uh, at the hands of all sorts of disasters. Evil is what allows uh, millions and millions of people to be stolen from villages and sent all over the world to be used. Like that is evil. Uh, and it all produces death. Uh, it's funny. One day, uh, I think about death all the time, and I don't know why. But one day, and like the, how the body works, like you breathe in, you breathe out. Oxygen goes uh, to your heart. It gets in your blood. It goes to everywhere else, right? But there's going to be a day you're going to breathe in and breathe out, and that'll be it. 
But what's crazy is uh, we die long before that. Uh, I see it in people all, all, all around me, all over my life, uh, that, that, that you make these small little uh, compromises or these little choices and you get detached further and further away from relationship and wholeness and you don't even know who you are anymore. You have no even understanding of what it means to connect to another human being and, and you have no longer that substance of life. What's great about the story of scriptures is it talks about this beginning where people knew who they were. They didn't have any shame. They loved other people perfectly and God walked with them in the cool of the day. That isn't just like a picture of, oh man, we really messed it up. That's a picture given to us to say, this is living. Like that is living. And what we have through sin is death. The opposite, the broken reality of that. And so these words, when it says, Jesus went into Galilee, fills me with immense hope. Because Galilee is just this underpass, forgotten spot. Like, Uh, Israel itself is just this piece of land that was used to move product from one empire to another empire. It was just in the middle between Egypt, uh, Rome, and Greece, and then Persia. And so the only value that Israel had to anybody, it was not the holy lands for anyone, it wasn't milk and honey for, for the Assyrians, it wasn't milk and honey for the Greeks, it was just a highway to Passover, to, to get through. It was, it was a required pit stop. Uh, and then Galilee is kind of like the thing beneath the highway. Like that's how little value Galilee had. Uh, in LA, we have these incredible like interchange highway things. They're taller than our buildings. You have six highways that converge and HOV carpool lanes going every which way. But, but deep beneath a lot of them, there's little tiny villages of people on the margins of society who are just trying to eke out a survival living. And Galilee is that kind of place, a forgotten place. A place where, where people don't remember. There's no songs written about them. There's no uh, heroes. There's no statues. There's nothing famous about it at all. It's just this earthly forgotten place. And so whenever I read that Jesus came into Galilee, what I know deep within my soul is that Jesus comes into this world, the forgotten, the dusty, the dirty parts. And what he's going to do is deal with sin because it's who he is. It's who Jesus is, the one who will save sins has come. And so that question that everyone's asking, is anyone going to come? That question is answered forever. Someone has come. When you're lying on the floor in your house wondering, how will I overcome this grief in my life? How will I overcome the burden of shame that I feel? When you're, when you're walking into work thinking, my life is already dead, Who's going to come and fix it? The answer has already been given. It happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus came into this world, the dirty, the forgotten, the overlooked. Uh, it doesn't matter if, you know, a guest speaker doesn't know how close Iowa is to Ohio. Uh, like, where you are and the place you are, God has intervened into it. Why? Because he wants to save sinners and bring you to life. And so we might, the question of, is there anything that we can hope for? It's answered right here. And I'm almost out of time, am I? It's two minutes? Sweet. That's all right, I got like four hours later. Two hours later. Uh, 
And we'll just keep talking about this because there's, there's more. But then, uh, this is, so that's, that's amazing, the, just this last bit. And then when we come back, we'll talk about what Jesus has to say as we live out being a community of apologetics. Uh, but then he says that, uh, he, what was he doing when he came? He didn't just come. He came doing something, saying something. It says he was proclaiming the good news of God. And this word proclaiming is uh, an ongoing, continuous verb action. So it wasn't, he came in and he did. And we say this all the time, you know, like, uh, now I can't think of an example. Brain dead. Anyway, we do this all the time. Now you have to just take my word for it. He, this, this, it's, and it's at this point in Mark where he's saying this is what he was doing the rest of the time. He's proclaiming good news all the time. Uh, in his eating with his disciples, in his shepherding of people, in his telling of stories, as he's walking on the roads, as his, as his disciples are gathering food for them, what he's doing all time and all actions and all ways, he is speaking the good news of God. And then, and so there's so much to dive into that, but then this good news of God is pretty remarkable also. Uh, good news, I'm sure you guys know that it's stolen word from the, the Greeks and the, the Romans of a messenger who would go from a, a battle and he would come into the city square and he would say, hey, listen, the king has won the battle and this is how your lives change. Like that was to proclaim and to evangelize. And the, the good news is just news that changes the reality for many, many people. Not like what we have today where they're like, breaking news, something unimportant that you won't remember in five minutes. This is breaking news. Everything is different from now on. Like you knew where you were when you heard that news. But the thing that I really want to kind of drill in on is who does that news belong to and what news is that about? Uh, before we go into our, your uh, presentations. It's not good news about me. It's not good news about you. We live in a hyper uh, individualistic, consumeristic world to where, uh, and we as Christians, especially in this country, have turned the richness of who God is and what he's done for this world to be a message about you, for you, only yours, something that you own. The gospel for you. And I think that as I've shepherded and cared for people all over uh, the West Coast, what I've come to understand is that people have genuinely rejected a false gospel that's about them, that is a therapeutic, selfish, deistic view for them. They've heard of all of this proclamations about God just wants you to have this wonderful life and get you what you want and make you happy and, and that that's who God is for you so that he can be your friend and your, your homeboy. And it's so discouraging if you ever go down the rabbit troll of TikTok or Instagram and the, the preaching that happens there. It's like, what is this about? Oh, it's about us and me it's about the individual. It's about only me, that the gospel is this wonderful cul-de-sac that I get to have this safety playground in. And it's not about redeeming me from sin or, or redeeming the world or restoring every broken thing. It's just about me. And standing oppos in opposition to that is the good news of God, and it belongs to him. Uh, I think about it like if you ever go to an art museum and... Uh, and if you think even about the Louvre in Paris, and when you go to that place, one of those big art museums, there's just this hush everywhere. Everyone's quiet. 
as if uh, the words might hurt the paintings. It's pretty, but I think that it's also, my, we did this for my birthday, me and my family went, and we saw all of these amazing paintings, and, and the, the hush is really just the awe of what you're seeing. And you just kind of walk through it all, and then maybe you find a, a spot, because you get tired, and you, you get a $25 salad, and you sit down at the snack bar, and you, and you just begin to talk to each other, and you say, that, that Rodin sculpture, Wow, that was amazing. Or what did you get out of that Matisse painting? And that's what you do in that, that awe and that reverence. What you don't do is if you go to the museums, you know there's little plaques next to it. And it's like the Van, you know, Cool Camp, you know, foundation bought this painting and, that, and it belongs to them. You don't sit down and you say, oh man, that, that Van Google Camp sunflowers thing. No, you say Van Gogh's sunflowers. Because he's the artist who created it. Yeah, we receive it. You know, you don't walk, like in LA, uh, there's two rich families that own everything. And, and you don't sit there and think, wow, their paintings are awesome. No, you sit down and you say, the artist's paintings marked me and transformed me. The same is true for us. It's not my gospel. It's not Sacred City's gospel. It's not Porter Brooks' gospel. It's not your gospel. You're just the one who's been impacted by it like a thing of beauty. And that's the, the richness that we could even possibly taste and see is a God who comes and brings really good news. Uh, just to wrap up and give you a taster for the future. Uh, our, our other, one of our other prophets in LA, Tupac Shakur, uh, he said this one thing once that was really amazing. Uh, he, he said, don't just sit there and nod your head to the music, but listen to the words and see what the person does to see if that stuff is real. That's what he said. I censored it a little bit. <laughs> But that's what, that's what he said. And what he was saying is there's all these people who are listening to the music and they're jiving with it. And they're like, that sounds really good. Hope and change sounds really good. It's a, you know, definite winner. Uh, but it's not just, okay, Jesus is saying some stuff and he, he has a name. And I can get into that. I can groove with that. But we should also look and see what he actually did and how he actually lived what kind of transformations happen around us? And then we'll know if that stuff is real. And I think that that's more than anything what a dying, hurting, broken world, whether it's in secret or if it's in public, is asking, is this stuff real? And frankly, this, the world doesn't have enough examples and things that they can touch and watch beyond just the beat of the music. Do they see a humanity that's been wrecked by a gospel, not for them, but a gospel that belongs to the living God who created the universe and yet speaks and walks among us. And so that's what we'll talk about when we come back.